there and welcome to the Secrets of Organ Playing podcast. I'm your host, Vidas Pinkavichus. Welcome to Secrets of Organ Playing podcast number 95. Uh, today is Sunday, May 21st, 2017. And today's guest is an talented and young American organist, Christopher Henley. He is a native of Talladega, Alabama, and serves as the organist of Aniston First United Methodist Church, where he provides service music for the 8.30 and 10.30 traditional worship services, manages the Solideo Gloria concert series, and accompanies various vocal and instrumental ensembles. His piano teachers have included Mrs. Pamela Thompson, Dr. Edisher Savitsky, and Dr. Tina Jill. He's also a member of Early Chamber Music Ensemble, where he plays harpsichords for various groups. As a collaborative um, artist, uh, Chris has joined uh, with clarinetist Michael Abrams to form Basilica Duo, a duo performing works for clarinet and organ. As a performer, Chris has performed across the United States as a soloist. Recent performances have taken him to St. Thomas Fifth Avenue in New York City, First Plymouth Congregational Church in Lincoln, Nebraska, Fourth Presbyterian Church in Chicago, Illinois, and St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Berkeley, California. As a competitor, he received first prize in the 2013 University of Alabama Organ Scholarship Competition, the 2013 Minnie McNeil Carr Organ Scholarship Competition and the 2012 Clarence Dickinson Organ Festival. In 2015, he was a finalist for the Southeast Regional Competition for Young Organists for the American Guild of Organists in Charlotte, North Carolina. Mr. Henley is an active uh, member of the American Guild of Organists and the University of Alabama Music Teachers Association. In the AGO, he was appointed as a member of the executive board for the AGO Young Organist Initiative for the Southeast region. He also serves as the student affairs coordinator of the Birmingham chapter. In this conversation, Chris shares his insights about his organ playing experiences, as well as about the audience's aspect in creating art, responding to criticism, finding dialogue between fellow musicians, and sharing your work with the world. Let's go to the show. Thank you so much, Chris, for joining in this conversation. I'm so delighted to be able to connect with you from Lithuania, and you, I know, are in Alabama, very far from us, uh, from across the Atlantic, right? And right. Uh, it's it's uh, evening in Lithuania, but uh, just like before the noon uh, in Alabama. So it's it's a very long distance call, but but nevertheless, our ideas will connect, and we'll talk about the things that we both love and enjoy. Basically, your organ world. Okay, thank you so much, and welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Wonderful. So, Chris, uh, do you remember those early days uh, when you first fell in love with the organ? Can you share the story with us? Yes, uh, it's funny. It's somewhat of a convoluted story. Um, when I was six years old, my, my parents enrolled me in piano lessons 
And I really did not want to take piano, so I decided instead to take karate. And after failing the white belt exam three times, I realized that probably was not my calling. Um, Wonderful. But yeah. Oh, yeah. Wonderful. Very healthy. Um, but years, a few years later, um, probably about when I was nine or ten, I was uh, watching a movie with my nieces and nephews, and it was Beauty and the Beast and the Enchanted Christmas. And the, the antagonist of that was a pipe organ named Forte. And oddly enough, that is what piqued my interest. And somewhere in the course of... Um, the next year, my family and I started attending First Baptist Church of Talladega, Alabama, my hometown. And there was a pipe organ there, and I went up after the service to introduce myself to the organist, who just so happened to be uh, the organist that played for my sister's wedding uh, many years prior. And his name was Mike Burt, and he invited me to come back the next week and he took me up into the organ chambers so I had a chance to see the pipes and I went back after every Sunday morning worship service and every Sunday evening service and learned more about the organ and eventually Mike got me with a wonderful piano teacher Pamela Thompson and from there I was able once I had more piano chops I was able to go to my first pipe organ encounter in Macon, Georgia. And after the pipe organ encounter, I was introduced to Dr. Faith Freeze at the University of Alabama, where I began studying with her when I was 15 years old as a ninth grader in high school. And I did four years in high school at the University of Alabama, a community music school. And then I just recently finished my bachelor of music degree in organ performance under Faith Freeze. Wonderful story. Uh, so from karate, uh, you you might have been a great fighter, you know. Uh, it doesn't matter that you failed for three times to pass the, the belt exam, the belt um, uh, test, because it's really hard, right? You What what style, by, by the way, was it? Do you remember? I do not remember at all. That was, that was so long ago. But it was funny because one of my best friends... Uh, that I made years later is now a fourth degree, fourth degree black belt instructor of Taekwondo. So uh -huh. he, he went much farther than I ever would have. <laughs> right, but you know, you know, although it's, it seems like karate and organ playing are so uh, different, right, and and distant from each other. One is from from the Far East culture, and ours is like. A, predominantly Christian culture, right? Western civilization phenomenon. Uh, they both share in common one certain aspect, I think, because it's, it's predominantly mental activity. Uh, not only physical activity, of course, we move our hands and feet in, in karate too, and of course in, in organ playing, but predominantly... We, we live and we, we work with our minds, right? We focus our minds. That's the, the whole idea of, of any artistic activity too. So, um, so, of course, you found your passion in a different area, right? In organ playing. But, uh, but nevertheless, I think uh, what uh, 
what touched you at the beginning with karate was not that far from what you're doing now. What do you think? Oh, yeah. You know, there, I can definitely see the similarities. Um, the interesting thing about the martial arts and any applied instrument, not just organ, but I think especially organ, is the mix between the physical and the cerebral. And, you know, one of the things that organists often get criticized of is that we're, we can be overly cerebral. We can sometimes think too much about our music. And then sometimes I think a lot of us don't think enough about our music. Um, you know, and this is one of the biggest advantages of having a wonderful technique. You can have all of the ideas of a musical composition and all of the musicality that you, that, you know, you, you can have in your mind, but unless you have the physical capability to reproduce what you're thinking in your head, it, it doesn't work. Right. Right. Um, because as, as we both know, it takes a lot of physical effort to play, right? Uh, what is in our minds? Let's say we don't play from, from the sheet. We improvise, right? We create ideas in the moment. So we still have to connect those ideas through our bodies, right? And to make them uh, physical, physical movements, right? And right. so, yes, you're right. So what happened later, uh, Chris, uh, with your organ playing? Uh, was it... Um, was it challenging at, at first, uh, or, or, or did you find, let's say, pedal playing easy or difficult at the beginning? Well, it's funny. When I first started playing pedals, um, I did not have organ shoes. I didn't get organ shoes until I, was, I had probably been playing about two years. Um, now, interestingly enough, I'm, I'm adopted, but on my biological side, my mother's side, actually, um, they're a very creative bunch. Uh, that's where the musical side of my family comes from. And if you ever heard of the story by, the short story by Robert Fulgham, all I needed to know I learned in kindergarten, that's actually a cousin of mine. So that's mm -hmm. the uh, creative side of my family. But um, I always had a, what I considered to be a pretty good musical ear, and a certain amount of just natural dexterity that, of course, was later developed. I never remember especially struggling with learning how to, you know, coordinate the, the pedal with the hands. Mm -hmm. um, it was when I got into aspects of learning how to improvise, where I was soloing a melody on the right hand and alto and tenor in the left hand and pedal in the, of course, in the pedal, or bass in the pedal. I remember that was a stretch for me. Um, you know, having to, having to take what I saw on the printed page and reorient myself um, constantly. But that, that's one of the biggest challenges I remember from starting out. Yes, uh, coordinate between the hands and the pedals. You know, for me, I remember the left hand and pedal combination was very, very complex because I first started playing the piano, and, and as you probably too. And... Uh, Remember this: the left hand usually takes the bass line in the in the uh, in the piano, the lowest stave, and here on the organ, it's the middle stave, right? And all of a sudden, the, the whole texture changes, right? And we have to uh, think differently in, in terms of uh, which hand and which which uh, foot is have to uh, is going to play which line, right? So that's tricky. 
at the beginning. Uh, how about in your experience, left hand co and pedal combination, was it tricky? It was a little tricky, although interestingly enough, I did not, even though I took piano when I was six years old, that was such a brief time. I, by the time I started becoming interested in organ, I knew nothing about piano. I didn't know how to read music. Um, I think from what I remember, I don't even remember what the letter names of on the keys were. Uh, because I start, so I started essentially with organ and after playing organ for a year to a year and a half, I, then I started piano. So I really did, I did it backwards from what everyone else did. So maybe that contributes somewhat to the fact that I didn't struggle as much with left-hand coordination, only because I didn't know that I was supposed to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Wonderful. So I hope, um, I hope uh, it's not that difficult today for you, right? But you have today different challenges, right? Every, every level, at every level, you meet new challenges, climb new mountains, right? What is your newest Everest, Everest mountain today? Well, the, the mountain I just finished, I, and I, I still have to go back eventually and revisit the mountain, was Max Rager's Chorale Fantasy on Vishenleuchtet. Uh-huh. Uh, a, a wonderful, wonderful piece. That piece really proved to be, it was the hardest thing I had ever played, and I, it's definitely way up there on the list, if not the hardest thing I've played to this day. Uh, just yesterday, I started learning uh, Leo Sowerby's Pageant, uh, and the Maurice Durfle Prelude and Fugue on the name of Alain. And good choices. I also started the the list Fantasy and Fugue on BACH only because it's it's a popular piece, and I have a tendency to play a lot of pieces that aren't necessarily in every organist canon. But I decided that I needed to have some lists to my name if I was going to play some Rager too. Mm -hmm. And Sowerby is definitely a struggle. It's 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 very hard to play only only because the technical demands of the pedal work, um, you know, you don't see that in every piece of repertoire that you play. Right. Do you, uh, uh, Chris, have a recital coming up for these pieces, or you're playing these compositions just for fun? Right now, I'm learning these just for fun. I would like to play um, eventually a recital of primarily Sowerby. I play Sowerby's Comes Autumn Time, and I'm looking at learning a few more Sowerby pieces. Uh, Faith Freeze, my professor, is uh, very intimate with the music of Sowerby. Her teacher, Robert Rayfield, I believe, personally knew Leo Sowerby. Um, so I'm not too far down in the lineage of having some... some um, connections to Sowerby. But no, right now, because I'm playing a fair amount of recitals, and I have been, um, right now I have my, generally my set before that I'm playing just around the country. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So, uh, I've heard that um, in Alabama, you, you will be having pipe organ encounters uh, advanced uh, week, right? this this uh, upcoming summer. Am I right? Yes, June 25th through the 30th at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa. Wonderful. I hope people who will be listening to this conversation will hear about this in time. Do you still have some open uh, application slots for people to, to fill, or is it too late? 
Sadly, it is too late. We just um, we closed registration on May 5th, and right now we have 16 registered, uh-huh. which really, I think, is a wonderful number. Um, and we have a wonderful faculty lineup. Um, people can go to our website, mm-hmm. uh, which I can reference um, a little later, but you can find out all about it if you Google Birmingham or Tuscaloosa Pipe Organ Encounter Advanced. Wonderful. You know, it's, I know it's not easy to find uh, players uh, who, can, who can play, uh, you know, advanced organ music and they have advanced organ skills, but at the same time, they are, you know, teenagers, like, like, uh, like 14 years old, like uh, 16 years old, right? What's the age limit for pipe organ encounters advanced? The age limit, I believe, is eight, it's, it cuts off at 18. It is usually four, the ages are 14 to 18. 14, yeah. um, and the nice thing about the entire pipe organ encounter system, though, is um, you, know, you have the regular pipe organ encounter, which is essentially just as an exposure program to allow piano students and maybe some who have had a limited um, exposure to organ to learn more about the instrument. We have, of course, the Pipe Organ Encounter Advanced, which is for those who have already achieved a high level of study and are more than likely going to move on to pursue organ at the collegiate level. Then you have Pipe Organ Encounter Technicals, which have a different age range. I don't remember specifically what that age range is, but that uh, allows the NGO to branch out and to market to people that really have to take on a different side of our field, which I think is equally important. We have, not only do we have to have people that can play the organ, but we have to have people who can build organs, maintain organs, and do general maintenance. And then finally, there is the POE, a, a POE Plus, which is for older students. And I don't really remember if there is an age limit to that one at all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so this summer will be in, in in Alabama this week. Wonderful! In the beginning of June, uh, people, young people, basically will come. Right, sixteen uh, participants will have um, one-on-one coaching. Right, with with Doctor Faith uh, Freeze. Right, and and others probably too. Uh, who, who who will be leading this uh, POE? advanced this year? Well, the, the POEA director is, of course, Dr. Freeze. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have some wonderful other faculty, too, and I hope I remember all of their names right now. Uh, we do have Dr. Jeff McClellan, who is director of music and organist at Independent Presbyterian Church in Birmingham. We have Nathan Lauba from the Eastman School of Music, a name that I believe everyone knows. Um, Dr. Joby Bell, from Appalachian State University, Dr. Lynn Davis from Wichita State University, Um, Dr. Isabel Demers from Baylor University, another wonderful player. Um, And I want to say there are others that uh, perhaps later, when they view view the website, they'll be able to see all of the names. I'm sorry that I can't remember all of them right now. Uh, um, Chris, uh, from those you mentioned, uh, Dr. Uh, 
Lynn Davis and Nathan Laube. Uh, of course, uh, um, Dr. Um, Dr. Um, Lynn Davis was on my podcast earlier and we, we talked about uh, wonderful things. So give uh, my regards to her and to Nathan. Nathan is scheduled for the future conversation in the upcoming months. So uh, I'm very glad you mentioned them. And of course, give my regards to Dr. Fries because uh, maybe maybe we'll connect with him in the future too. All right, I will, I will certainly be sure to do all of those things. Wonderful. So let's talk a little bit uh, about your, your current work uh, uh, in the church. Can you mention the church names uh, name again? Yes, I am the organist at the First United Methodist Church in Anniston, Alabama. Mm-hmm. So uh, do you only play the organ there or do you lead the choir and uh, in general musical life around the church? Uh, I am not the director of music. Um, I am fortunate here, though, to have a wonderful director of music, Kathy Murphy, who has been at the church for 14 or 15 years. And uh, one of the wonderful things about working with her is we have this phenomenal spirit of collaboration. Um, I, while I am the organist, I am able to branch out and do more than just organ playing. Uh, I'm the assistant director of our youth choir, um, and I do a, a various amount of administrative work. I'm the manager for the Solidale Gloria concert series, mm-hmm. which the church had a concert series in years past, but it, it wasn't the most active one. And when I was hired in the beginning of 2015, we had discussed the possibility of starting a new series. Um, And thankfully, we're about to enter our third season of offering monthly concerts of September through May. And this year, this coming summer, we're going to start offering once a week 30-minute concerts um, on a Wednesday afternoon during the lunch hour that people can come on their lunch break and enjoy some wonderful music. Not just organ music, but uh, handbell choir. We have the bluegrass musician coming in to offer some wonderful folk music. And we're even going to have a piano quartet, of which I will be a part. Um, but one of the really fun things about the music ministry at Aniston First Methodist is that we have started... Uh, in the past year, we started an Evensong series, which, as you know, is mostly associated with an Anglican church or an Episcopal church. But really relying on the heritage of the, the, that the Methodist church has, of course, with the Wesleys being Anglicans, um, in our book of worship, which is essentially our book of common prayer, even though it's not anywhere as comprehensive, um, it, it allows us the flexibility to do a service of sung evening prayer, and we're just following along the tradition of many and calling it Evensong, in which we will be singing the Magnificat and the Nunc Dimittis and uh, Anglican chant, as well as some powerhouse pieces of the Anglican choral repertoire. And I founded a separate choir to sing that service called the Noble Camerata. And the Noble Camerata is currently 11 voices, um, and they're not all members of Aniston First Methodist. They are members of the community. Uh, one of the local university, or the local university is in Jacksonville, which is only about 10 miles north of Aniston. And that's Jacksonville State University. 
and several students from JSU are members of the Camerata, as well as local choral conductors of high schools, uh, private voice instructors, and some people who just love to sing. And we have a wonderful time rehearsing once a week to make some beautiful music. Mm-hmm. What kind of music do you sing with them? This past season, we did primarily uh, 20th, 20th to 21st century choral compositions. Uh, nothing avant-garde, but we did some Ole Gelo, uh, Ubi Caritas. We've done a fair amount of John Rutter, uh, just trying to get our feet wet. Uh, Thomas Tallis, If You Love Me, another uh, wonderful motet. Uh, and this concert that we have upcoming in, in August is essentially a programmatic concert. Of a, it's, the, it's in three parts. And the, story, the point of the concert is the telling of someone's life. And we start off with two colonial folk songs by Dan Forrest to represent the ideas of adolescence. And then we move through a Z, Z. Randall Stroop piece, I Am Not Yours, which essentially talks about being in love with someone or having someone in love with you that you don't necessarily love. And it's really a lament. And it's an emotionally a excruciatingly difficult piece to sing. I had the opportunity to sing it when I was in university singers at Alabama. And then we move on through essentially not a midlife crisis, but the crisis of the intersecting of our faith and life as we get older, and then the last section of the recital deals with, or the, the choral concert ends with the themes of death and resurrection, where we sing Eric Essenwald's Only in Sleep, which is a beautiful, uh, essentially, you could think of it as a memoir that someone's writing at the end of their life, or the retelling of a dream, where they're saying all of these memories of their of their past, of these children that they knew, you know, what has come of them now? You know, do they still remember me as a child? Mm-hmm. And then we move on to a choral composition by my professor or my uh, former choral conductor at Alabama, Dr. John Ratledge, uh, Somewhere I Have Never Traveled, which ends wonderfully with Somewhere I Have Never Traveled or Somewhere is the place to be. And then we took the idea of, well, if you're going to go somewhere, how do you get there? And if we're, if we're ascribing the, the concept of heaven uh, as this epitome of somewhere, we're, then the next piece that follows is Stephen Paulus, The Road Home, uh, which ends wonderfully with rise up, follow me, come away is the call. You know, it's a, it's a wonderful painting, essentially, in the last Uh, the very last piece, when essentially you've reached the end of your life, what else is there more to say than Eric Whitaker's Alleluia, ending with Amen. And that is how the concert ends. Wow. It's a lot of great programmatic music, right? And I, I, I hope, I sincerely hope, uh, Chris, that, that you can communicate those ideas that you just shared with me with your listeners too, because it's so touching, right? To, to be able to describe the, the text and the ideas bef- uh, behind your selections to the audience who will come, right? Will you be doing this? Yes, I will definitely be. Uh, we'll have some written program notes. We're looking at the possibility of incorporating poetry or 
some some verbal cues that allow people to have an idea of what's going on. Um, some people have even suggested a few multimedia um, addition to the performance, which since the performance is several months away, we're start, we're actually considering that right now. Um, the whole point, though, is, as you can see, is we're trying to tell a story. And for me, uh, whenever I take on a music student, one of the first concepts we address is what is music? And what is the point of music? And I always get back to, it's a, sense, it's a form of communication. It's a language. And I think sometimes choral music really combines the best of both worlds, of this idea of the musical language and our human language, whatever our native tongue is. It's something that we can all understand at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, and if you can even translate musical ideas into text, right, into the language that people can communicate uh, in everyday life, right, they then will, of course... Uh, connect with your uh, pieces on on much deeper level, right? They will come out of this event touched, even changed somehow, right? The the experience probably will last for a long time, uh, at least uh, uh, from what I can uh, hear when you are saying it. It's very, very touching. Well, that is definitely our, our goal is to, when people come to a performance of the Noble Camerata, we want them to leave a different person than how they came in. Mm-hmm. It's, it's definitely art, right? What is art, by the way? Uh, art is actually not only painting or playing or acting or dancing, right? It's, it's a human activity which changes others for the better, right? Uh, it, it leaves an impact to other people um, on, on a positive side, probably, uh, for the most part. So what you will be doing, uh, touching people's souls, right, uh, with, with words and music, that's definitely an artistic act. And um, if you only um, rehearsed and uh, performed uh, uh, f- for the empty church, right, empty seats without any anyone listening, that that perhaps wouldn't be art at all. That would be uh, singing, right? But you need a, a listener to participate, don't you think? Right. You know, it's the same idea of you know, if a forest falls in the tree, does anyone still hear it? You know, we can rehear- one of the challenges in rehearsing music like this. I think for me is I've spent a lot of time by myself in a practice room or at home reading the, reading the text, playing each individual part. And as musicians, we can so often, especially singers, I think, um, and choral conductors even, we can get hung up on what our notes are. And of course, we're trying to express the notes. Um, we're trying to convey the text, but we as the, as the musicians, other than the conductor in this case, perhaps, uh, I think I was, I was incorrect to say earlier about the conductor, but we, as singers, don't get to hear the whole picture. And we have heard the music, hopefully, a thousand times. If we're, if we're good musicians and we practice well enough, we, we know our music inside and out. And we know what our individual notes do for us but sometimes I think we, we need an audience 
In fact, I'll never forget the first time, the, the first time I conducted the Noble Camerata in concert was the first time conducting a choir on my own uh, for an entire performance. And, the, and they sang, you know, more beautifully than I'd ever heard before. And, they, and all of the choristers told me later, we wish you could have seen the people's faces during the concert. And it struck me at that moment, you know, as a conductor, I don't have the luxury to see how the audience is reacting. Um, all I can do as a conductor is to respond to what the choir is giving me. There's this energy that's going back and forth. I'm giving energy to the choir, They're giving me sound back, but because they are seeing the reaction of the people, you know, it's the same idea of, I feel like as an organist, I always perform better for an audience than just, you know, a dry run uh, in, in an empty church. We need the, the added human element to really make our art pop. And if anything, when we do it for others, that is when I believe that we are at our peak. That is when we are being not just musicians and not just singers, but artists, communicators of our passion. I'm not sure if, if, if Chris, you even appreciate how deep this idea goes. Uh, I know you appreciate, but our listeners may, may not appreciate. Let's reinforce this a little bit. Even... Today, even now, while we are talking about this, right? Imagine that Chris, you will, you were alone in in a, in your office, right? Uh, um, talking about those the same ideas, like like a lecture, right? Uh, recording yourself on the video, right? And uh, that wouldn't be the same, right? At all. Uh, you together. We make this this conversation possible, and uh, it changes both of us. Probably it touches, right? Uh, I always like to call uh, our conversations with organists from all over the world like having virtual cup of cappuccino together, right? Very informal, very improvised way of uh, talking uh, to people about the ideas that we both love and enjoy. Um, so, so yes. You touched me, Chris, and I hopefully uh, can also make an, uh, a little bit of an impact to what you are saying, and we both actually are making impact to our listeners right now. Right, and you know, at the end of the day, you know, I, I've had a lot of people in, in discussions with not just musicians, but um, you know, some non-musicians, and the question is, why do you do what you do? You know, what is it that drives us? For me, if it were simply entertainment, I don't think there'd be enough depth to hold me there. Um, but, you know, you have to take, this is one of the definite, I think, you know, I'll use one of my favorite examples about art is food. I love to eat. Uh, sometimes I love to eat too much. But whenever I travel around the country, and um, the one time I've been overseas, which hopefully I'll be back in Europe again soon, um, is food is a gateway to a culture, just as music can be. But food can be art, or it can be fast food where it simply fulfills a need. It's, you know, if you're getting on an elevator at a hotel and you're hearing music in an elevator, more than likely, partially due to the context, that's not going to transport you anywhere other than literally than the floor that you need to get to. Um, and for me, 
um, just as you were saying, it, it, it all boils down to the, to the simple concept of art requires someone else to be there. You know, does art on its – can you say that a painting that hangs in an empty room by itself has much meaning without others there to simply enjoy it and to take something from it? And then, the, of course, what did the artist have in mind? If the artist had in mind to paint a picture and leave it in a locked room you know, for all of eternity, I guess you could make the argument then that, well, it's fulfilling its purpose. But I think at the same time, we always have to get back to not just the art on its own merit, but the intentionality of the artist that um, crafted. The, Very the, profound idea, Chris. Uh, if the artist, if the painter uh, creates a painting, right, and uh, keeps it uh, hidden in the attic, right, uh, it's, it's just painting. Nobody else is touched by it. But then if somebody sees this painting, at least one person, right? At least one person, uh, not necessarily the entire world or entire city comes to this exhibition, right? But just one person is enough to make an art, right? Possible. So for organists, uh, I, I'm just uh, taking this one step further. There are a lot of organists around the world who love to play the organ, who love to practice in their practice rooms or even in churches, right? But a lot of them, uh, they, they hide their art so much that they, they never show them, never show to other people, right, what they learned, what, what their talents are. They are perhaps afraid of criticisms, right, and sometimes rightfully so, but, but I think it's necessary to share our art, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. You know, it's interesting that you bring up the, the point about criticism. Um, one of the things that I notice and I, I think there are a lot of issues that I have in not, not with the organ field as a whole, but if you look at Facebook or just any social media, anytime we put our, our ideas, be, be they political or religious or in this case artistic, ever since social media has become more of a thing, um, we have invited more criticism upon ourselves. And, of course, you know, some people would say, well, you just don't need to say anything and you can avoid criticism. But to me, you know, taking it back to music, you know, I've, I've learned some wonderful pieces of repertoire. There are a few pieces I've learned that I have yet to find the right venue to per, in which to perform it in public. Um only par partially because of my geographical location. But I think that we'd, we'd have to, at some point, if we want to be true musicians and true artists, we have to get over the fear that our, what we're doing is inadequate. Now, of course, you know, I don't want to go out in a public performance and slop through a piece that's messy and has, you know, is riddled with errors but just on the grounds of interpretation, we need to get out there. And even if for ourselves, we need to know what works and what doesn't work. And sometimes that's the trial and error. 
Yes, the true art happens when when we say to our audience, here, we made this, right? What do you think? And uh, when we do this from our heart uh, very generously, then uh, we are open ourselves to, to the criticisms, right? To the people who can say, I don't like what you, di- what you did, right? I did- don't like what you created. Therefore, I don't like you personally, right? And uh, there is something wrong with you, right? And people like organists, like we, um, get offended uh, by those criticisms and it, not, not even offended, but um, try then to, uh, ba- uh, you know, bash ourselves, uh, uh, make fun uh, of other people, then uh, blame others, right? I think what's what's important, though, is to ignore those critics. In, if we are doing our true work, we have to ignore those critics and do their best we can and be open to criticism so that we can move forward. Don't you think? Right. You know, I'm, sometimes I'm cautious to completely ignore the criticism because sometimes we, I think as as humans, whenever someone criticizes us, we have to take a few. We have to take a few steps to process that. One, of course, is who is the critic in this case? You know, right. what is the subject matter, and where are they coming from? You know, if it's a if it's a criticism of your work and what you have done, take it as that. Don't take it as a personal attack. Now, if it's a criticism of you as a person or they're criticizing your art and it turns into a criticism of who you are as a person, at that point I would start to question, well, maybe this person just needs to be quiet and quit talking. <laughs> mm-hmm. True, Chris. Uh, you know, it's very easy to, to think this way. Uh, unless this person sits in the same boat as you are, unless he is or she is the creator uh, who who makes himself or herself vulnerable in the same way that you are personally uh, showing up every day and making your art available for people and open yourself to criticisms of all kinds. Unless this person is in the same boat uh, as you are, then his or her opinion doesn't matter at all. Right? It's easy to criticize you if I'm sitting in front of TV watching YouTube videos and uh, saying, oh, you're not playing this left-hand part, you know, with precise articulation that uh, Maurice Durufle in, in uh, Prelude uh, sur le nom de l'en uh, wrote, right? But unless I played this piece myself and shared it with the world, I have no right to criticize you, right? Yeah. I have no right uh, unless unless I'm doing the same vulnerable and generous work. Then I can criticize some. I, you know, the you can think this way. I earn the privilege to criticize you if I'm doing the same thing that you are. Not necessarily playing the same piece, though. Not necessarily even playing the organ, but doing art, right? Creating art and sharing uh, with the world. Then we are on the same page, more or less, right? Then we can understand each other. Right, and we have to all, you know, the, the more you put yourself out there, 
um, which I've learned can be very scary at times. Um, when you put yourself out there, you automatically ha you have a chance to open a conversation with other artists and other musicians at higher levels. Maybe not, you know, maybe we're not, on, or in my case, being, you know, only 22 years old, I'm not able to, to communicate at the same level where some of these others are. Um, but I would hope that through what I do as an individual, I am able to open the dialogue with these other people. And I may, you know, I've been to some organ recitals where I've disagreed with the performer's interpretation. And then I looked at their pedigree and I looked at what has gotten them to this point. And I don't know the full story usually. And I think, well, this is valid. This is, this is their interpretation of it. It might be different from mine or what I would do in my own performing, performing life or in my own teaching. But, you know, can I say that it's not valid only because we're at different parts of our lives? Or when I'm listening to someone younger, I've had discussions before with a student and they will articulate to me, you know, this is why I think I want to do it this way. And, you know, if it, it may be something I've never played before. And I'll look at it and I'll say, well, you know, they're coming at this, they're coming at this from the right angle, for sure. And then, you know, I have to give it some credibility. Right. And uh, Chris, five, 10 or 15 years earlier, we wouldn't be able to have this conversation at all because the technology today allows us to connect with people from all over the world in real time, right? And uh, share those ideas. And uh, this is particularly spect spectacular for people, for non-tech people like myself, who can, you know, who can create some ideas, but I'm not knowledge knowledgeable about those technical things at all. But with the push of a button, I can wield this technology and make, uh, make some art this way and connect with you and through both of us to the uh, people around the world. And this is fantastic, right? Um, so I'm so uh, grateful that you connected with, with me today and with other people around the world, Chris. You're very generous. Well, I really appreciate having the opportunity to get on here and not only just to talk about you know, the organ as, a, as a, a specific instrument, but just as art and music and how it affects our lives. Right. So uh, I wish, uh, I wish um, for this year and in upcoming years that you, you will deepen your, your, not only organ studies, but your entire perspective on art, how, how, can, uh, how it can impact other human beings in a positive way. How can you... How can you make a positive impact on your community in Alabama, in this case, right? You know, on your congregation, your uh, United Methodist Church, right? When you're leading this this vocal group uh, with your with your rehearsals and your your concerts, which are coming up, this is particularly generous work we are doing, and I hope you will keep doing this for a long time. Well, thank you, and I intend to. I hope I have many years to go. So, Chris, wonderful. Um, of course, people are now very curious to get to know more about you and your work. So, could you please give our listeners a link where they could find out more about you and your work online? 
Yes. Um, if you want to keep up with my performance schedule and eventually some writings of mine, you can go to Christopher B. Henley. It's uh, Christopher B. H-E-N-L-E-Y dot blog. And that will have a biography, um, a few YouTube videos, and uh, a calendar. I also have, of course, a Facebook account. Um, I am on Instagram. I just recently got back on Twitter. I had a Twitter account for seven years and never used it, and someone hacked it and was spreading information all over the place that shouldn't have been out there. Um, and, of course, you can find me on YouTube. You can type in Christopher Henley Organist, and you'll find various YouTube videos. And what about your church? What's the address of your church? My church, you can find us at anistonfirst.info, I-N-F-O, and Aniston is A-N-N-I-S-T-O-N-F-I-R-S-T.info. And you can, uh, we're actually about to begin a project of redoing our website, and we're going to hopefully have some recordings of even songs online, too. Wonderful. Um, you know, with today's technology, I don't know if you have done this, in, 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 in your pocket, you have the complete video recording suite uh, in your pocket available, right? Uh, like smartphone, right? Probably every people, every person who is listening to this around the world has this uh, option, right? Uh, available. Well, sometimes the internet connection is not uh, that great uh, in other countries, right? But uh, they're working towards it, uh, of free Wi-Fi, global Wi-Fi, right? And um, uh, what I'm thinking about is that um, your um, congregation, your pastor, your your leaders of the church services could even live stream, live stream ch- uh, church services and and even songs, right? And concerts and recitals, uh, which is an, an amazing way to reach a broader audience, global audience online. Have you tried this? We have done a little bit of live streaming um, for some church services. Uh, we have started, we we record all services, of course, and we're eventually going to put all the sermons for sure online. We've run into a few issues with licensing for music that is not in the public domain, but we are looking at you know acquiring the necessary licenses. Um, I know we have a contemporary service. I know that has a Facebook Live that they'll do. Um, and of course, the wonderful thing about Facebook Live is it's archived. You can go back and look at all of these videos in time. Um, I have actually, I've, I've, I have live streamed one concert. It was on Instagram uh, when I performed in Washington, D.C. The problem with recording or doing a live feed on Instagram, at least as of right now, is once you have, once you have, turned off the live feed, even though you as the individual that posted the feed can go back and look at it. Uh, those who were watching it or would like to go back and see it later cannot. And that's a lesson I had to learn the hard way. Right. About Facebook Live, uh, you could live stream from Facebook and they, they could uh, rewind the recording easily in the future. Right. Mm-hmm. Or on Periscope too. It's very... Periscope is uh, owned by Twitter now, and you could actually 
live live cast your any, any type of event or a portion of a recital right or your practice doesn't have to be a, an official re- event you, you can just uh, have a tripod uh, your smartphone and uh, set up uh, where your face or fingers are visible right and just for um, for a brief moment for a few minutes you can live stream on Facebook or Periscope or other platforms, right? Like Snapchat too, it's a possibility. So today, in today's world, live, live, live events, live casting, live streaming is, is getting more push from these platforms, social media platforms. And YouTube was, is also having this possibility too for everyone. So it's amazing world out there. And uh, I hope organists uh, from many, many countries will take advantage uh, of these new technologies and new tools to enhance their creativity and develop uh, their expertise this way and build their credibility around the world. Oh, absolutely. I think it's in this day and age, especially for young organists that are wanting to build a career, I think that's, you know, we need to use all of the resources that are available to us. Mm-hmm. So, Chris, today you shared with us wonderful ideas about uh, about the art, what it means to create art, what it means uh, to have this human element in art and the audience, right? Um, and how to respond to criticism and how to have this great dialogue with other fellow musicians. Um, it's so deep, actually. Have you... Have you um, have you written about this uh, someplace online? Maybe you have a blog or something because it's worth sharing uh, in texts, not only not only in in audio or video like this. It's funny. I do have a blog, uh, and people can find it. I don't. It, it's um. It's I think I, I think I called it. I, I actually have forgotten a view from the loft or a view from the organ loft. And it's where I try to share my ideas about things, not specifically about Oregon. I'll I'll write about travel. Um, One of my summer projects is to get more serious about blogging because I I do believe that I have some things that maybe are worth sharing and maybe not, you know, and people can decide if they want to subscribe or not. But I would definitely be interested in writing more, um, especially after having conversations with people like you that, you know, there's a wonderful uh, intellectual energy, I think, that we have going back and forth that has just helped essentially stimulate more dialogue and more discussions that can be um, taken from our discussions that we just had. Yes. Yes, Chris. And in our organ world, there is a lack of, of spirited intellectual competition, right? People... People don't get uh, to share those uh, deeper ideas that we're talking about today in a broad, uh, for a broader audience. So blogging that you mentioned is a great tool of communicating this long term, not overnight, but, but drip by drip by drip uh, in, in a, you know, uh, regular postings. Because over time what happens uh, your expertise builds up, right? If you do this for uh, for a year every day, uh, you will build a mountain uh, of, of of your legacy. So it's especially empowering for people, for for organists or from all over the world. 
and they have not taken full advantage of these tools yet, and I hope they will, because their future of careers depend on it. Absolutely. You know, we're in a, we're in a society now that, can, that really, uh, as much as I love social media, it's also caused some problems. You know, our attention spans have gotten shorter. Our ability just to stay focused on one task at a time has gotten shorter. But by the same token, we have these wonderful resources that we can use to share what we do with others, to learn from other people, and hopefully to inspire others too. Uh, Not just in the field of music or in the field of art, but, you know, this helps us in some way broaden the human experience just as a human being on the planet earth, just to continuously keep learning. This is why I always promote travel. You know, I love to travel. I wish I, I wish I had the money to travel more and learn from more people and go and study. But until, until I'm, you know, a merchant famous, which will never happen. Um, resources like live stream or video chat, we can always continue to learn from one another. This, this is right. And Chris, I believe one day will come when you, you can travel the world. And one of the best ways I found is through playing organ recitals uh, across the globe, right? Then you can actually make money to cover your expenses, travel expenses, and uh, do the things that you love and enjoy other countries, other cultures. Um, so I think the day will come if you keep sharing your art if you keep doing the generous work that you are doing today. Thank you so much, Chris. You've been a wonderful guest today, wonderful storyteller. And I hope people will visit your website and uh, will get to know more about you. Thank you so much. And um, create, share, repeat. Thank you so much. If you liked this conversation, I encourage you to visit my blog, Secrets of Organ Playing, at organduo.lt, where you will find lots of insights, practical advice, and training for every area of organ playing. You can subscribe to this blog for free to get your daily dose of inspiration and to be the first to know when any of my future podcasts roll out. I hope to help you reach your dreams in organ playing. I'm Vidas Pinkavitus, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you online really soon.